Christopher Latham Scholes was born February 14, 1819. Yes, that's Valentine's Day for those of you who follow holidays. He was born on a farm near Mooresburg, Pennsylvania. When he was about 14, he began to learn the newspaper trade as an apprentice to the editor of the Danville, Pennsylvania Intelligencer. When he was 21, he established his own newspaper, The Telegraph, in what is now known as Kenosha, Wisconsin. As a newspaper publisher, he developed an interest in politics and ended up serving as both a state senator and assemblyman. An avowed abolitionist, he was affiliated with the Free Soil Movement and played a role in establishing the Republican Party. It was probably through these connections that he received an appointment as a customs collector in 1860. The government job gave him some extra time on his hands, time that he, with friends Samuel Soleil and Carlos Glidden, used to develop a system for mechanically printing page numbers on book pages. Glidden is reported to have suggested that this machine serve as the basis for a lettering machine. A year later, in 1868, the three friends patented their invention as a typewriter. For those who are interested, it is patent number 79,265, issued on June 23, 1868. It looks more like a miniature piano than a typewriter. Scholz and his partner continued to enhance their typewriter, eventually coming up with the standard keyboard that remains in use today. However, they lacked the manufacturing experience to effectively mass-produce their invention, and eventually, Scholl, who had bought out his partners, sold the production rights to the Remington Arms Company, who were diversifying their product lines in order to remain competitive after the Confederacy's collapse reduced their need for handguns. They produced their second model, named, appropriately, the Remington No. 2. It really launched the equipment. It was the first that had a shift key, permitting the use of both upper and lower case letters. In 1974, when I left for college as a bright young 18-year-old, my parents gifted me with a portable Remington typewriter. Scholl's work is illustrative of the important economic and social developments that took place in the United States at the same time the nation was embroiled in post-Civil War Reconstruction. Hi, I'm Charles McCloskey, and this is Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about history that you don't often learn about in school. In this episode, I want to talk about important, though frequently ignored, historical events that took place during the same time as Reconstruction. Both as historians and as students of history, we are often so embroiled with the developments surrounding the Civil War that we forget about how the rest of the country was developing during this same period. That's why I think this topic is ideal for Shotguns and Sugar. As with all of these podcasts, this one is based on my U.S. History lecture series that I developed for my college U.S. History and World Civilization classes. As with my other podcasts, a complete list of the sources used for this one is available on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. Unlike most of my other podcasts that emphasize a single topic, this one touches just briefly on a number of topics, 47 to be exact. But that number does include a few related to Reconstruction to maintain some perspective, so it'll sound more like a timeline than a narrative. So hold on to your seats and listen closely, or you'll miss one or two of them. First, having said I want to talk about events that took place outside of Reconstruction, I really want to begin with the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Enacted on March 13, 1866, it was the first federal law protecting the rights of African Americans. Although President Johnson vetoed it, Congress overrode his veto, making the act a federal law. This act is worth at least mention here because of the pivotal role it played in the country's future, and it's a good way to start off the entire timeline. Just a couple of weeks later, on April 6, 1866, the first post of the Grand Army of the Republic was formed in Decatur, Illinois. 
though often ignored today, it developed into a major social and political force throughout the next 50 years or so. The GAR, as it is often called, began the celebration of Memorial Day. On July 28, 1866, Congress enacted the Metric Act of 1866, which standardized weights and measurements in the United States. This act was one of the many important bricks in the construction of the modern American economic system. Without it, we would have no idea if the gas pumps we're filling our tanks with and charging us for our concept of a gallon or someone else's. In January of 1867, the first issue of a magazine titled Ragged Dick or the Street Life in New York with Boot Blacks was published in the Student and Schoolmate magazine. Written by Horatio Alger, the series was expanded into a book series that emphasized the rags-to-riches theme. These books created the American dream that endures today as part of the American psyche. On March 30, 1867, Secretary of State William H. Seward, same one who was attacked as part of the conspiracy to bring down the Union that resulted in Lincoln's assassination, signed the Treaty of Cession of Russian America to the United States. The treaty consummated the sale of Alaska to the United States from Russia for $7.2 million, approximately two cents per acre. It also brought to an end Russian efforts at imperial expansion. December 4, 1867, the Grange organized to protect the interest of the American farmer. It was one of the first organizations that would define the populist era. The Grange still provides important social programs in rural America. Parenthetically, it was also one of the first, if not the first, organization of its type that permitted women to assume leadership roles in local chapters as well as on regional and national levels. On March 5, 1868, George Westinghouse patented the air brake for use on railroad cars and organized a company to produce them. By the way, the technology he developed is essentially the same braking system used in the nation's, if not the world's, railroad systems today. Westinghouse went on to patent 400 inventions and found 60 companies, including Westinghouse Electric Company. As I discussed earlier, in July of 1868, Christopher Scholes, Carlos Glidden, and S.W. Soleil patented the typewriter, one of the first steps in creating the modern computers that control so much of our lives today. On October 28, 1868, Thomas Edison applied for his first patent for an electric vote recorder. On November 3, 1868, Republican Ulysses S. Grant, with Shiler Colfax as his running mate, proved victorious in his quest to become the 18th President of the United States, defeating Horatio Seymour, 214-80, to 80, in the Electoral College. Grant was sworn in on March 4, 1869. On May 10, 1869, the final spike of the Transcontinental Railroad was driven into the ground at Promontory, Utah, making the junction of the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads. This act, as much as any other, brought about the marked increase in the settlement of the West. It also symbolized race relations and immigration. Most of the railroad workers on the east side were Irish immigrants. On the west side, most were Chinese immigrants. About six weeks later, on June 15, 1869, John W. Hyatt, a New York printer, patented an invention he called celluloid. The first synthetic plastic, today it is widely used in the manufacture of such mundane things as combs, dentures, curtains, and photographic film, not to mention billiard balls. When he discovered the product, he was working to find a substitute for the ivory that was then commonly used for the billiard balls. On Friday, September 24, 1869, 
the nation experienced its first Black Friday. The crash occurred when the federal government, under the direction of President Grant, sold $4 million in gold and used the money to repurchase some of the government bonds that had been issued to finance the Civil War. Although Grant had been selling gold reserves in small amounts for some time, this particular sale was conceived when Grant discovered a cabal led by investors Jay Gold and Jim Fisk. With the help of Grant's son-in-law and an undersecretary of the Treasury by the name of Daniel Butterfield, who happened to be a retired Army general, Golden Fisk had cornered the gold market and pushed the price of gold from about $100 per ounce to close to $160 per ounce, with some speculators pushing the $200 per ounce mark. When Grant discovered the plot, he had George S. Boutwell, his secretary of the Treasury, sell $4 million in gold, about 20% of the total value of the gold market of the day. Putting that much gold in circulation at once caused the price of gold to plummet. In fact, it lost about 17% of its value in just a few hours. The drop forced those who had purchased the mineral on credit as an investment to lose the value of their loan, forcing them into bankruptcy. The loss spilled over to the stock market, which dropped 20 points. It also spilled over to the Chicago agricultural market, where wheat and corn harvest values dropped by half, throwing the industry into a financial tailspin from which it did not recover for decades, leading, as will be discussed later, to the creation of the Greenback Party and contributing to the rise of populism later in the century. Unfortunately, in my opinion, Golden Fisk fared quite well in the collapse. Born in advance of the sale, remember the president's son-in-law, gold was able to move most of his assets out of the gold market into stocks and bonds and netted about $12 million from the fire sale. This Black Friday, of course, presaged the better-known one that would take place in 1929. Later that year, on November 6, 1869, Rutgers and New Jersey, later known as Princeton, met on the gridiron in what is widely recognized as the first American football game. Rutgers won 6-4. According to the NCAA website, the rules were far different than today's. Scoring was only allowed by kicking the ball through the goalposts. Carrying or throwing the ball was against the rules. Players could only bat the ball with their hands, feet, heads, and sides. Of course, kicking was allowed. On December 10, 1869, in one of the first acts of success in the women's suffrage movement, Wyoming's territorial legislature enacted the Women's Suffrage Act of 1869. Motivation for the law was twofold. First, some legislators recognized the vital role women played in frontier living and believed they should have a say in how it was run. Others simply thought it would encourage more women to move into the territory, increasing its overall population. On January 10, 1870, John D. Rockefeller incorporated Standard Oil Company. Standard Oil is often credited as being the first of a series of major companies that drove the Industrial Revolution and made men like Andrew Carnegie, Marcus Goldman, and Henry Ford household names. Rockefeller was the first and the largest of them. Interestingly, he built his empire not on gasoline, but on kerosene, the manufacturer of which put out a byproduct that would later power most of the cars driven throughout the world. On February 25, 1870, Hiram Rhodes Revels, a Republican from Mississippi, was sworn into office as a member of the United States Senate. This is historically significant because Rebels was the first African-American to hold a seat in either house of the United States Congress. Lest anyone make a false assumption, although he was born in 1827 and raised in South Carolina, Rebels was freeborn. 
His father, a Baptist preacher, was thought to be of mixed African and Croatian Indian lineage. His mother was of Scots descent. Only about six weeks later, on March 30, 1870, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was declared ratified by the Secretary of State. It gave the right to vote to black Americans. Race would officially no longer be a ban to voting rights. On June 1, 1870, the 1870 census began. Results indicated a national population of 38,558,371, a 22.6% increase in the total population over the 1860 census. This lower-than-normal increase illustrated the effect of the Civil War on the nation. On July 5, 1870, the last former state of the Confederacy, Georgia, was readmitted to the Union, and the Confederate States of America was officially dissolved. On November 1, 1870, the National Weather Service, known as the Weather Bureau, made its first official meteorological forecast, high winds at Chicago and Milwaukee and along the lakes. On April 4, 1871, the first professional baseball league, the National Association, debuted with a game between the Cleveland Forest Cities and the Fort Wayne Kikiangas. Fort Wayne won the game 2 to nothing. The spring of 1871 was also the peak year for the legendary Texas cattle drives. The earliest drives began in the 1850s between San Antonio and Southern California and could last up to six months. Charles Goodnight's invention of the chuck wagon in 1866 encouraged and accelerated cattle drives. That year saw some 260,000 head of cattle travel north to the railroads in Kansas. The drives began to decline when the railroads arrived in Texas, particularly Fort Worth and Dallas, in the mid-1870s, but continued clear into the 1890s. October 8, 1871 saw the beginning of two horrendous disasters. The Great Chicago Fire started, in legend, by a kick from Mrs. O'Leary's cow, although in actuality it was likely started in their cowshed by Daniel Sullivan, who first reported the fire. The fire caused $196 million in damages. It burned 1.2 million acres of land, destroyed 17,450 buildings, killed 250 people, and left 90,000 homeless. The same day the Chicago fire started, and overshadowed by its legend, a fire in Prestigo, Wisconsin spread across six counties in one day. It killed between 1,200 and 2,500 people, making it the deadliest fire in United States history. In a development that 21st century gun owners and most conservatives appreciate, and that progressives seems to thoroughly dislike, on November 17, 1871, the state of New York, of all places, granted the National Rifle Association its first charter. Another New York cultural landmark took place on February 20, 1872, when the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art opened its doors. On March 1, 1872, President Grant signed legislation establishing the world's first national park, Yellowstone National Park in the states of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. Some, particularly those in Arkansas, note that a group of mineral springs that Native Americans had been using for centuries was designated a federal reserve by President Andrew Jackson in 1832, making it the first facility designated by the federal government as a historic and recreational park. That said, Hot Springs was not designated a national park until 1921. 
To provide some perspective relative to Reconstruction, on May 22, 1872, President Grant signed the Amnesty Act of 1872, restoring the civil rights to all citizens of the South, well, the white ones anyway, except for 500 Confederate leaders. On November 5, 1872, women's suffragette Susan B. Anthony publicized the cause of a woman's right to vote when she illegally submitted a ballot in the presidential election in her home voting district in Rochester, New York, having been previously allowed to register to vote. The Republican candidate, the sitting president, Ulysses S. Grant, had fought a five-candidate ballot but gained a landslide electoral college victory with 286 out of 290 votes in his favor. The remaining four votes were split among his contenders, one of which was Horace Greeley. Greeley had died on November 29th after the popular votes were recorded, but prior to the electoral college vote. Incidentally, Anthony was arrested along with 14 other women who also voted with her. Anthony was, however, the only one to go to trial. Her trial resulted in a directed conviction, and she was assessed a $100 fine, which she refused to pay, and that was never collected. On July 21, 1873, Jesse James and the James Younger Gang held the first successful train robbery in the American West, taking $3,000 from the Rock Island Express at Adair, Iowa. September 18, 1873 marked the beginning of the longest period of economic contraction in the history of the United States. It started with an announcement from an investment bank specializing in government and railroad bonds by the name of J. Cook & Company that it would deny its customers the right to withdraw their deposit. The bank had been instrumental in handling the bonds for the construction of a railroad line to link Duluth, Minnesota and Seattle, Washington. To fund the construction, the railroad company, not the bank, used a shell company to leverage government subsidies and inflate construction costs, thus increasing their profits. When the deception came to light, investor confidence in both railroad companies in general and in Congress, who was blamed for the problem, was damaged to the point that investors moved their money elsewhere, causing the J. Cook & Company to lose investors and forcing it to close its doors. Its announcement caused other dominoes to fall as more and more investors withdrew their money from other banks, in turn causing those banks to fail. The bank failures caused the commercial enterprises to lose the credit that they needed for capitalization and short-term operating expenses, forcing them into bankruptcy. As the businesses closed, unemployment rose. New York City alone experienced a 25% unemployment rate. The hardest hit were the Civil War veterans, many of whom became transients. Although the railroad issue started the collapse, it highlighted an underlying weakness in the economy. As I understand it, the Second Industrial Revolution had focused on inventions in both technology and business operations that were designed to improve productivity. However, the industrial sector had oversold the return on investments from the increased efficiencies. As investors realized their return on investments were less than prophesied, they began to look for reasons to pull their money out of the rising industries. Jay Gold and Company's actions simply created the excuse that investors needed to flee the financial market. Markets. Federal efforts to move back into the gold standard after paying off the Civil War debts worsened the situation, giving the Grant administration a largely undeserved reputation as a poor manager of the nation's resources that follows it even today. 
The financial contraction that is the hallmark of a depression lasted at least 65 months. That's almost two years longer than the Great Depression of the 1930s. The depression was not limited to the United States, but affected most of Europe, and, through the damage done to the imperialist regimes, the colonial empires that were developing throughout Africa and Asia at this same time period. Moving along, on December 15, 1873, a group of suffragettes in Fredonia, New York, marched against a retail liquor dealer, leading to the creation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In 1917, this movement culminated in the passage of the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the sale of liquor in the United States, a ban that will last for 16 years. Parenthetically, the temperance movement did not begin in 1873. That had been going on since at least 1784, when Benjamin Rush, one of the signatures of the Declaration of Independence, published a tract titled An Inquiry into the Effects of Ardent Spirits Upon the Human Body and Mind. In fact, temperance was one of the issues discussed in the famous Seneca Falls Convention that is credited with kicking off the women's suffrage movement. On March 18, 1874, the Kingdom of Hawaii signed a treaty granting exclusive trade rights to citizens of the United States. This was one of the first steps to American annexation of the islands in 1898. On July 1, 1874, the first zoo in the United States opened in Fairmont Park, Philadelphia. On November 7, 1874, the symbol of the Republican Party, the elephant, debuted when Thomas Nast printed a cartoon utilizing the symbol in Harper's Weekly. Parenthetically, the donkey was made the symbol of the Democratic Party decades earlier, when supporters of John Quincy Adams and others who opposed Andrew Jackson as the Democratic Party's nominee in the 1828 presidential campaign labeled Jackson, please excuse the language, as a jackass for his populist beliefs. Jackson took ownership of the symbolism and included images of a donkey on his campaign posters. Later, Harper's Weekly included a donkey in Democratic-oriented anti-Civil War cartoons, reinforcing the association of the donkey with the Democratic Party. The end of the open range the West was so famous for was heralded on November 24, 1874, when Joseph Glidden received a patent for barbed wire. Coincidentally, the very next day, on November 25, 1874, a group of farmers who had been hurt by the Panic of 1873 organized the U.S. Greenback Party to ensure that their concerns were addressed in Washington. The Greenbacks, among other groups, created the populist movement that saw its rise to power a decade later. To provide another bit of a reference point to Reconstruction, on March 1, 1875, the United States Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875, giving equal rights to blacks in jury duty and accommodation. The United States Supreme Court overturned the act in 1883. On May 17, 1875, the first Kentucky Derby was run at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. Later, in the 20th century, it became the first leg of today's Triple Crown series. The horse Astrodites was the first winner. In his report on the Indian Wars dated November 9, 1875, Inspector E.C. Watkins stated that hundreds of Sioux and Cheyenne tribal groups under Indian leaders Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse were openly hostile against the United States government, giving voice to U.S. policy that led to battles such as the Battle of Little Bighorn. 
On January 31st, 1876, we see the original date that the U.S. government had set for all Native Americans to move on to a system of reservations throughout the West. Although President Grant extended the date, the issue led to the Great Sioux War of 1876. On May 10, 1876, the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, a World's Fair meant to celebrate the 100th birthday of the United States, opened on 285 acres in Fairmount Park, Philadelphia. Among its notable public showings were Alexander Graham Bell with his newly patented telephone, Thomas Edison with the megaphone and phonograph, George Westinghouse with his air brake, the first public showing of the top portion of the Statue of Liberty, and the Coralus engine, a steam engine so large it powered the entire exhibition, providing power to the 34 nations and 20 colonies who exhibited. The exhibition showed that not only was the United States an equal on par with European nations in manufactured goods, but it had surpassed them in innovation. After the war, the Coralus engine was purchased by the St. Louis and Southwestern Railroad and installed in a railroad yard in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where it provided power to the yard until the railroad began purchasing power from the local electric company in the 1960s. The exhibition closed on November 10, 1876, after 159 days, not including Sundays, with a paid and free attendance of 8,095,349. Over 9.9 million people, including staff, saw the first large-scale World's Fair in the United States, jumped the United States into the upper echelon of nations with its exhibits and inventions. This exhibition was also credited with healing many of the wounds still left by the Civil War, binding the nation together with the effort. The Battle of Little Bighorn took place on June 25th and 26th, 1876. This battle started when Lieutenant Colonel George Custer and his 7th U.S. Cavalry engaged the Sioux and Cheyenne Indians on the bluffs above the Little Bighorn River. Although a terrible loss to the United States Army, it was not the complete massacre that legend remembers. Not only did thousands of Native Americans survive, but hundreds of members of the United States military. In fact, of the 586 soldiers in the 7th Cavalry, only 330 died during the battle or shortly thereafter. Only those in Custer's battalion were completely destroyed. On August 2, 1876, Congress approved legislation that authorized the federal government to complete the privately sponsored, until that time, Washington Monument, with an appropriation of $2 million. On March 2, 1877, a joint session of the United States Congress convened on the presidential election dispute, reaching the Compromise of 1877 and electing Rutherford B. Hayes as president and William A. Wheeler as vice president. They were inaugurated two days later on March 4th. Hayes appointed Carl Schutz, Secretary of the Interior, who began efforts to prevent forest destruction. The compromise removed Union troops from the South, permitting the systematic disenfranchisement of former slaves and opening the door to the enactment of the Jim Crow laws. This compromise marks the end of Reconstruction. Finally, on June 21, 1877, the Molly Maguires, an Irish terrorist society based in the minefields surrounding Scranton, Pennsylvania, was broken up when 11 leaders were hung for the murders of police and mine officials. 
with this brief review of a few events that took place during Reconstruction that had nothing to do with Reconstruction, I hope you can begin to see the pivotal role the decade from 1867 to 1877 had on the future of America, socially, economically, and politically. Of course, this is not a comprehensive list. It's just ones that I think are important to our 21st century society. As you study this time period, you might consider coming up with your own top 50 events that took place during but outside of Reconstruction. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, and tune in to future broadcasts about the wonders of history.